out on the table. We're doing our bullet or not our bulletin. We don't do bulletins anymore. It's way too much work. Um, uh, what do you call it? Directory. directory. Thank you. The directory. <laughs> Man, I better get with it here. Uh, our directory out there. So if you are in it and your address has changed, your email has changed, your phone number has changed, and you want that corrected, go ahead and cross it off on the directory that's out there and write in what you want there. Um, if you want to be added to it, there's a slip that you can fill out and put that in the tie box, and then we'll get that to Rod, and he'll go ahead and add it with a, a small donation of $3,000. And uh, Nope, it's free. Just kidding. Um, so that's out there. We kind of want to get that up today. And then secondly, we're going to be hanging out the end-of-year uh, donation receipts, but we're going to put them out on the table this time for you to grab. Um, and then whatever doesn't get taken, we'll go ahead and send out to the people that didn't grab it. Um, um, and uh, if your address has changed, the accountants go off of whatever address is on your check. So if you moved and you're still using old checks, they won't know that you've moved, and so they're going to send it to the old address. All that to say, if you do have an address change and you want our accountants to know that, uh, just, again, write that in that and say, please tell the accountant or accountant or something like that so we know to get that to them to go ahead and change that so that you have the right address on your, on your receipts. So anyway... That'll be there. And then thirdly, if your receipts are wrong, because they can be. Sometimes we mess up, miss a deposit or something. Not miss a deposit. <laughs> we definitely get your money. We got your money. Um, but if it doesn't get uh, noted correctly, please let us know. It's nothing for me. to. Get. We've got blank ones. I'll fill it out for whatever amount you want. I'm just kidding. Um, I'll trust you, and we'll get it taken care of, because we definitely want, I know a lot of people are like, hey, I'm ready to go, and uh, I don't want you waiting on us, so... Anyway, that's kind of the update. This morning, we will be in chapters uh, 17 and 18 of Exodus, and then we're going to have communion also today, so we're going to have to kind of hustle here through this. Last week in chapter 16, God had provided the nation of Israel, the entire nation of Israel in the wilderness, with bread and quail. And uh, it was a serious complaint. They had a genuine complaint. They didn't have any food. They were running out of food. And um, they brought it before Moses uh, in a funny kind of way, in a, in a whiny kind of way. Um, and then Moses brought it to the Lord, and the Lord answered their prayer, and that's where we're at today. Now they're going to run into problem number two. Problem number two is that they're going to not have enough water. They're going to need water. And that's a legitimate concern in the desert. You know, you, you, you need water. What I want to notice about this as we go through this really quickly is that God allows the problem to arise. He doesn't always keep things smooth. He lets the problem arise so that we come to him with prayer. We come and ask him for the solution. He wants us to get into that habit of relying on him and trusting in him, to wait on him, and to, you know, to let him respond. Um, he wants to be our provider because with that, it's healthy for us. It's good for us to not be relying on ourselves or other people, but be to be relying on God for our help and for our strength and our needs. And so he lets these problems develop so that we come to him. And in neither case is he going to be upset with the people because they're legitimate concerns. He understands that they're dust. He understands they are weak. And he has sympathy for that. Okay, and he answers them. Um, this is going to be a, a chronic thing with them, though. And what I hope we also learn from this is how we come to God with our problems. He may have let the problem arise, but we can come in a good attitude towards the Lord. We don't have to be complaining or contentious or angry. We can simply, quietly, with assurance in our heart, because we know who He is, bring our problems and cares to the Lord and, and wait for the answer expectantly. 
and we don't have to come like these guys are coming. He's also trying to teach them to trust him because they're going to come to a river pretty soon. And they're going to have the option of obeying him there and trusting him there as well. And so he's trying to build that relationship with them. Okay, you need food? I got food. You need water? I've got water. You need shade? I've got shade. You need light? I've got light. You need protection? I've got protection. They're going to do a battle here today. I'm going to show you what I can do. So that when we come to the serious stuff and I tell you ahead of time that it's going to be a tough, that I tell you ahead of time there's going to be a problem arising, I don't want you to worry about it. I want you to trust me through it. He's trying to build a relationship with them and them to understand who he is. So verse 1, chapter 17, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? That's, this is going to be their modus operandi. This is what they do. Um, and, you know, you're in the desert and you can see your boat bag getting low. You know, and you're wondering how this is going to get filled up. There's nothing but sand around you. And that's, that's normal. That's a normal thing. It's, it's how they go about it that's abnormal. Now, you notice here there's quotes. So this is somebody actually saying this. I know, obviously, right? I don't mean to. But sometimes I get the idea that we have this faceless crowd, and at the count of three, we all chant, we need water. And that's not how it's going out. Someone is coming up and contending with Moses. Someone or a group of men is coming up and complaining against him. Someone is this instigator. Someone is giving a voice to this problem, to these, to these people. And uh, that are behind him. And that's going to come up later on. I think it's Korah and his gang, but we don't know that for sure because it's not mentioned. Um, but there's this problem. There's this complaining. They don't come properly. It's, there's nothing wrong with bringing your problems to the Lord, but bring them to him with assurance that he's going to, you know, with trust, with, with faith, not with, uh, not with, I don't know what you're going to do about this problem. And these guys seem to be like this. You brought us out to kill us. Right? Right. You know, you can almost see him kind of doing that. Yeah, he's brought us out to kill us. You know, it's like, yeah, I killed all the Egyptian gods with ten plagues. I wiped out the entire Egyptian army, and now I'm going to kill you next. It doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. But, you know, they're thirsty, and that's all they know. And so Moses asked them a question. Why are you contending with me? You know, what do I have to do with it? And they can continually complain. And so Moses relents, and uh, I'm not going to kill you. Um, and brings it to the Lord in verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now that's interesting to me. You know, you serve a lot of people. You minister, whether you're here in this position or any position. We're all serving people somewhere. So I've never had anybody want to kill me before. I've said it before. I think they're going to kill me. And they're so mad they're going to kill me. I never meant it. You know, can you imagine? We're going to kill you, man. Well, let me go to the Lord in prayer. God gives you an answer. And then you've got to come back to these people and say, I know you were going to kill me, but now I'm going to bring you water. I'd have like hidden behind the last, you know, dune and just kept on walking and say, figure it out for yourself. It would be difficult to go back to a group of people that literally wanted to kill you and then minister to them and to serve them. But he does it. He does it. See, he's a type of Christ. Christ does that. They're enemies of Moses's. Moses understands that, but he intercedes on behalf of the people to God. God gives him a solution, and he does his Father's will, which is what Jesus did for us. 
Now, Moses isn't a perfect example. He's got some problems with the people. He doesn't exactly happy with them, and Jesus doesn't. He loves us. But you can see the similarities here. And so they're, got, they're about ready to kill me, God. I didn't know if you noticed. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Not everybody, just some of the elders. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. That the people may drink. So he's giving them a solution to the problem, you know. He doesn't complain about the way they came up. He doesn't, you know, well, maybe if they'd ask nicer, I'd give them more water. No, he just understands their weakness and gives them a solution. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place um, Massa and Mirabah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? A little more insight into their complaint. Is God really with us? I mean, you do know that the, the pillar of fire is still there, the pillar of smoke is still there, the quail is still there, the man is still there. But their question is, is God really with us? I know, it, it does. It makes you look at it and say, oy vey, you know, kind of thing. But, okay, now here's where we get to get ourselves. I only question whether God's with me or not when I don't see him doing what I think he should be doing in my life. That's when I question. I don't know if God's with me anymore. You know? The, the, you know, the candy fairy hasn't come by my house today and given me what I want. You know, he hasn't done what I think he should be doing for me. I don't know where God is. When actually God is doing a whole lot of things, he's just not doing what I want him to do at that time. He's working in a whole lot of areas that need worked on, but they're tough areas, tough areas that I don't like to mess with. Who likes to work in tough areas of their life? Nobody likes to exercise. Nobody likes to exert energy when they don't need to. That's, we come up with the phrase, work smarter, not harder, right? You know, it's because we hate to move. You know? It's not fun to ache and to hurt and all that stuff, and so we're reluctant to do what's necessary you know, to, to, to better ourselves. Um, I've had a, a lot of jobs, um, off and on, different places, all temporary usually, um, and none of them are fun to learn. That learning curve when you come to a new job, it's just not fun. It's not fun when you learn a whole new task. This last one that I've been in, I've had to learn Medicare and Medicaid. I didn't even know there was a difference between the two until I got this job. Oh, is there a difference, you know? And the insurance companies and what they require and telling doctors, no, you, you kind of wrote it right, but you got to write it this way for Medicare to accept the claim. Otherwise, they're going to reject it because it looks like... Da, 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 da. And I did not want to learn that. But if I wanted income, <laughs> if I wanted money to come in, I better learn my job and do it right so that I can still do So I had to learn the hard stuff to get what I needed to go do the fun stuff, to do what was necessary, you know. And God is at work in our hearts, in our lives spiritually. Yeah, I, I, want, I want to see signs and wonders and miracles. I want to see miraculous things and those beautiful moments with people that you're just, wow, that was a God thing. You, know, you want those. Other times, you know, when I'm frustrated and waiting on the Lord and I'm like, hurry up. How come you're not here yet? And he tells me because I'm working on your patience, you know. And I'm like, yeah, well, hurry up with that already, you know. I'm trying to move on to phase two. And he's like, okay, I'll be there in a minute. Oh, and you get it then finally. You want me to stop doing this on my Bible, you know, waiting, you know, kind of thing. And he's like, no, I want, I want to produce patience in you. I don't like that. 
And while I'm waiting for God to show up and answer my prayers and take me out of my take me through my trials, you know, and get me through this stuff, he's teaching me something. I'm learning something, you know. I'm growing in an area I didn't necessarily want to grow in or didn't think I needed to grow in, but I'm working. And that's what's happening with the children of Israel. Yes, I know you're thirsty. Of course you're thirsty. You're in the desert. I get that. But I want you to learn to cry, see something, cry out to me, and I solve it. See something, cry out to me. I'm building, you know, you're learning here. And so he's trying to teach him something. So he says, I've got this solution. I want you to, to strike this rock. And he did exactly what he's supposed to do. Now, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 10.4, he tells us what this means. He's got a New Testament truth, and this is an Old Testament picture of Christ. He says Christ is that rock, and that rock was smitten once for all, and out of it comes the rivers or the waters of life, okay? And in Revelation 22, we're actually offered, that's the last, really the last question we get is, Whoever, so whoever wants to drink from this living water may come, come, come to the living water. And that rock is Christ, and he produces that living water. And that's where the source is, that's where it comes from. But it's smitten once, it's struck once. Now, later on in the story, spoiler alert, Moses is going to have another thirst problem from the gang. And God's going to tell him, I want you to speak to the rock. Don't hit it. I want you to speak to the rock. And he gets mad. Yeah, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of you people. Here's the water. The water's coming, you know. You've got to turn the spigot on. Well, he gets in big trouble with God for that because he misrepresented God. He says, no, the rock is going to be a symbol of Christ. Christ gets smitten once, not twice. And because you ruined that picture, instead of speaking to the rock and water came, you don't get to go into the promised land now. That's the only reason, you know. It's a big enough reason. When you misrepresent Christ to those around you, that's a big enough reason. It's really important. God is very protective of what he's trying to teach people. And if we get in the way, he doesn't like that when we get in the way. I'm not saying we're going to hell and we don't get to go to the promised land. What I'm saying is we have to be very careful. And so he's told to do this and he does it. He smites the rock. The water comes out. That rock is Christ and the water begins to flow. It's a great picture. Now, they're going to continue to complain over and over again. And this one month long journey from the wilderness of sin all the way to the promised land is going to end up being 40 years for them. And it's unnecessary. It didn't have to go like that. It wasn't supposed to go like that. But it has to go like that because of the decisions, because of the lack of faith, the lack of trust they had along the way. This one-month journey, this trick, trap, trek through the, through the desert was supposed to be quick, and God was going to take care of them all the way, and they were supposed to go across and have victory and conquer. The only thing they were required to do, sorry, I'm pointing at you, um, was to trust the Lord. They just had to believe him at his word and do what he said. That's all they had to do. But they didn't. They didn't. And this once around the mountain ended up being 40 years around the mountain with the same problems, the same lack of trust, the same lack of faith. And they kept on getting told what the answer was. But they wouldn't and they wouldn't and they wouldn't and they stayed there. Folks, you know, you hear that in Christianity a lot. And I'm not sure. I, I, I don't like the terminology. For some reason it rubs me the wrong way. But we're on a journey. You know, we're going we're all on a journey. Okay, and I say it that way because I don't like it. It's like, yeah, whatever. But the journey is not the point. It's the destination. That's all that matters. Let's get there. You know, I, I don't care what happens on the way there. I, I, I don't want to live there. I don't want to go back and forth, up and down the journey on the path. No, I just, you just take the path and you get to your, the goal. 
I'm going to heaven and, and I, I, there's some obstacles I have to jump over on the way on this thing. There's some things I got to go around. There's some things God's going to have to do for me to make this way straight and flat and easy for me to get there. And I'm going to have to call on him sometimes because I can't do it on my own. And he's going to do that. But I want to keep moving forward and get going. I don't want to sit down by the journey and sit there and stare at it and enjoy it as if that's the destination. It's not. Our problems, are, our trials, our difficulties, they're not the point. It's for us to learn about him, to know him, to trust him more, and to get there. Let's just get there, you know? There's a movie, I can't remember what it was, and it doesn't matter, but I, I got to thinking about that flight. You know, it's hard to get a, a one-way or a, one, a non-stop flight anywhere without paying twice as much, you know, so you get this delay someplace. And it's like, it's like that's your journey, that's your tra- I'm trying to get from Los Angeles to Miami, but I got this delay in Houston. And so you land in Houston, you decide not to get on the plane, you decide to just walk around the Houston airport for the next 40 years. You know, it's like, I can't believe it's the same food, you know, it's the same expensive food. And it's like, if you'd got on the plane, you'd be there by now, kind of thing. I'm not, I don't know how that well that works. We don't want to get to heaven any sooner than he wants us there, but it's the best I could do, Okay. These guys just kind of, it was a one-month trip, ended up being 40 years because of the lack of faith. And so let's bring it home to us. I, I, I want to do what God tells me to do. I want to trust him in everything. And whatever comes my way, I just want to say, wow, this is, this is another problem. And I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to be contentious with you. I know who you are. I know what you've done in the past. I've written it down. I've got notes. I'm not going to fall into that trap of doubt and worry anymore, and fear, I'm just going to lay out before you, God, look, we've got another problem. You're going to do something great. And expectingly wait for him, you know, to come up with a brilliant solution that you wouldn't have even thought of. It gets exciting. Those kind of journeys, those walks, whatever you want to call them, that's fun then. It's fun when you trust. It's fun when you have faith. It's fun when you know, you know, because of past experience, he's going to do what he's always done. That's exciting. And that's what he's trying to teach them. Look, this is going to be great. Wait till we get to Jericho. When we get to Jericho, you just got to walk around the place seven times, you know, and the plus seven and so on. But you got to just walk. I'm going to bring the whole place down. It's all going to shake and fall, you know. It's going to get exciting if you do exactly what I tell you to do, you know. It's the same today. It's the same for us. And so... It's up to us whether we go around the mountain again and again. It's up to us whether we believe God's word and apply it to our lives and be doers and not hearers only. It's up to us to actually make a choice to actually implement the plan. You know, he told me to do this. It's exactly what I'm going to do, you know, and see what he does. And he will. It always works. Verse 8. So they're in the wilderness and they're, they're on their uh, trek um, towards the promised land. Now Amalek, now he's a descendant of Esau, not, not friendlies came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, this first time we hear about him, he's getting ready, well not, but it's the first time we see him step up to be a leader, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill and with, uh, with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with, the, with Amalek. So, okay, he's up on top of the hill and he's up there with his, and as long as he's doing the stick thing, Joshua is winning. The guys are winning. They're winning, okay? And every time he gets tired and puts it down, the other guys start winning, which is an interesting way to do this, okay? Um, He hasn't done this in the past. If there's been a problem, God just handles it. Here he's working on some dependence between the two. 
Okay, Joshua's actually got to be on the field doing the fighting. That's what he's called to do. But he knows that it's not him and his strength and his skills. It has to do with God and Moses being the representative of God, holding up his arm. That's when we win. That's how we're successful here. Moses isn't down there fighting. Joshua is. And Joshua isn't winning. Moses is. You see the, the dependency there that God's trying to build here and to trust. So that's what they do. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. There's a lot you can take from this. When they get into the promised land and Joshua is the one fighting, they don't do this anymore. This isn't necessary, but for now it is. Okay, For now it is. Um, God's trying to show them something and teach them something. And, and I don't know how to maybe make the connection for you, except that I don't know who I am. I could be Ben. I could be her. You know, um, I could be Aaron. I could be Moses. Uh, I could be Joshua at different times. I think we could all switch those roles up. But the point is, um, they all need to be trusting in the Lord. They need to be waiting on him and doing what he says to do. If this is how we win, then this is how we do it. God isn't going to be put in a pigeonhole when they get to when they get to Jericho, they don't do it this way. When they get to Ai, they don't do it this way the second time. When they get to Ai the second time, they don't do it this way. There's no way to pigeonhole and say, this is the formula to follow God. This is what God does every single time. Jesus healed the, the, side, uh, the blind people different ways, three different ways, so that we couldn't say, okay, so it's spit, mud, and prayer. That's, that's how God heals blind people. No, 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 not always. He always wants us paying attention to him. We don't want to, he doesn't want us to be like this, you know, okay, you know, subsection C appendix B, you know. No, I want you to cry out to me. I want you to talk to me. I want, I've got specific instructions for this situation for you now. And that teaches us constant communication with God. Talk, constant fellowship with the Lord is necessary, okay, constant. He never gets to the point where he's irrelevant in our lives, that we know it all, you know. We've got to have him. We must have him. And so it works, and they win. And uh, you can see the, the beauty of being an Aaron or a Hur supporting Moses. You can see the, the faithfulness of Moses to do what he's called to do at his age. You know? We can see Joshua willing, saying, you bet, throwing himself into the battle, knowing that I don't know how this is going to work, but he does it. That's going to come in handy later on for him. He's just that kind of guy. Verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And that's true. There are no Amalekites to this day. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that is going to be a problem for them for a while. These guys are going to continually. But as for now, 2,000 years later or more, we, we don't know about them anymore. There's no recollection or there's no... Nothing recorded about these guys. So um, he's wiped them out, that's for sure. But they learned something that day. Okay, chapter 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, we don't know what he's the priest of. Keep that in mind. He's a polytheist at this point. He's a priest, all right, but he's not like what we think of. He's not like Pastor Jethro. Uh, you know, um, 
he's a, he's a priest, he's a polytheist, he believes in lots of different gods, he's got lots of different things, all roads lead to heaven kind of guy. Okay, that's who he is. Um, just kind of covering his bases. I want a little bit of everything, you know. So that's who he is. Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, make note of that, with her, two sons of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So Gershom means uh, not from here, basically. Uh, And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So that means uh, God is my help. Okay, Eliezer, God is my help, the helper. Um, And we know that from past stories in Genesis that um, he was the uh, um, he was Isaac's uh, servant and or Abraham's servant, but Isaac's got, got Isaac's bride for him. That's a backstory there for that. He was the helper, of the Holy Spirit, and Jethro. So all all of them are there. His wife, his kids, and Jethro, the father-in-law, uh, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, "I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you." with your wife, her two sons, and her two sons with her. So, okay, not a big deal, okay? But I do want to make note of this. Where'd she go? I mean, do you remember the last time we heard about her? Last time we heard about her was back in Exodus 4, okay? Moses had gotten the call to go ahead and go down to Egypt to go ahead and do this and take Aaron and everybody. And he packs up his whole family, Moses does. She was with him. And they started heading down, and an angel showed up and was going to kill Moses. And she quickly gets out a knife and, you know, uh, circumcises the son, throws it at her husband and says, you are a husband of blood to me. She's mad. She's mad at him. That's the last we hear of Zipporah for a while, until now. He sent her back. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we should send our wives back to their dads. I'm not. I'm just being funny. I'm picking on the girls today. But I tell you what, isn't there a better way to talk to your husband than that? You know, you're a husband of blood to me and throwing that foreskin at him. It's like, really? You know? And guys, isn't there a better way to talk to your wives? Because I'm not going to leave you out of it either. Sometimes you may be right. Zipporah was right. He should have done it. He wasn't being obedient to God. There's a whole lot there, but you know what? Did she have to say and throw the foreskin at him and say, you're a husband of blood to me? I mean, we can be nasty people sometimes. And Moses says, you know, I got a big job ahead of me. I think you better stay with your dad. I don't know if I need this kind of help the rest of the trip. You know, now I don't know if that's what's said at all. I don't know if that's what happened. But, you know, marriage counseling 101, support each other. Encourage each other in your failures. You married sinners. You married a dirty, rotten, wicked sinner. Look at your wife and sit. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You did. We're broken. We all need Jesus. We all need salvation. We all need forgiveness of our sins. And that doesn't end once you get married. It still goes on. There's a whole lot. There's better ways to handle this stuff, you know? You want to build up your marriage? You don't throw foreskins at your husband and tell him he's a husband of blood to you. Yeah, I'm going to keep saying that too. But you say, I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I was there. I'm glad I I was able to be a blessing. I'm glad I was able to help you, husband. Yeah, it was a mistake. I know we should have done that before. And 
I don't, you know, we don't know the backstory, and it could have been her problem. That's why she didn't want her sons, you know, um, circumcised or whatever. We don't know what the background, but, but she could have handled it better. Oh, I'm glad it was there. I'm glad it, was, I'm glad it worked out. Boy, that was a close one, wasn't it? It was, honey, it was. You know, thank you. Well, yeah, anytime. I got my knife ready. You know, it's just this, this great relationship. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm your biggest cheerleader. I know you're going to blow it sometimes, but I'm here to hold your arms up uh, or I'm here to encourage you when you fail. And likewise, do that for your wives too. You know, we all make mistakes. We all blow it sometimes. Shouldn't have bought that car a year ago, you know? Too expensive. We can't afford it. We've been struggling to make payments on everything else. We're still, it's like we live for the car. I hate that car. It's even the wrong color, you know? And, and you can complain and whine and fuss about that and make your husband feel like he's an idiot for going there. We can't help ourselves. We have to drive through the lots. We just do. I don't know if you, maybe the gals do that too. You just drive through the lots. You got to go like really late at night so the, the, the flies don't come out and attack you. Can I get you a car? You know, kind of thing. No offense, Kale. No offense, Kale. Um, <laughs> but you do, so you drive, and you get excited, and you, get, and you make a mistake, and it's okay to make a mistake, and, and gals understand that when we make the mistake, and they finally own up to it, it takes us a little longer to finally own up to it, just say, you know, that's all right, let's just, let's just do, maybe we should just get rid of it, and just start over, and let's just do better next time, let's think about this a little longer, yeah, and it builds up your husband, it encourages him, you know, cheerlead him, don't say, yeah, that was stupid, told you so, you know, red. What were you thinking? Of course, we're going to get pulled over. Your lead foot. I mean, it just builds, you know, kind of thing. No, encourage. And same with the wives. The wives, you know what? You, well, you don't say this. <laughs> you look tired. You don't ever say that, guys, ever, you know? Thanks. No, you say, what can I do for you, you know? And how can I help you? Or, you know, I can see that. Can I go do this? Is this a good idea? Or do you want to wait on doing that? You know, offer up your help. She may be overloaded, overwhelmed, and trying, and doing this, that, and the other thing. It's just too much, you know? And you just step in, and you try to help when you can, and do that, and be encouraged. Don't look at it and say, is it going to look like this every time I come home? <laughs> Bad. <laughs> you know? Build each other up, you know? Are you going to look like this every time I come home? That's even worse, you know? I wouldn't look like this if you get off, you know? So you encourage one another, and you build each other up, and you do the dishes, and you, you know, fold laundry. I hate folding laundry. Especially, I already told you this. I tell you this every time, but that's how much I hate it. The, the sheets, the fitted sheets, they don't fold. They just ball. You throw them in the linen closet. They don't fold. Encourage one another. Because I tell you what, you look at her and you say, is there anything I can do for you? Let me help you out today. I got, I've, you know, it wasn't that bad a day for me. I'd like to help you out. You know what? You could really do this. Love to. And be excited about it. You know? And do it wholeheartedly. Start to finish, guys. All the way into the, you know, whatever. And, and, and then she sits back and says, oh, you know, it just builds your relationship up. Don't be husband of blood, wife of blood, whatever it is. Anyway. I, I, that's called springboarding when you teach the Word of God. You jump off a of scripture and you teach what you want to teach, not because it's in the text, so that's springboarding. It's not how you teach the Bible, by the way. But I wanted to anyway. So, all right, let's get back in the way we're supposed to do it. Verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. That's hilarious. You've got to think that's funny. doesn't kiss his wife. He goes and kisses his father-in-law. I mean, yay, Jethro, Zipporah, you know, or whatever. I don't know <laughs> 
I don't know what happened there, but it documents him kissing his father-in-law. I don't know. And they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent. And Moses told... Now look at this. Jethro's a polytheist. Remember that? Believes in lots of different gods. All roads lead to heaven, right? Look at this. I love it. And they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered uh, the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. The polytheist just becomes a monotheist. He understands there's a true and living God. He understands that I was the priest of all of the gods, covering our bases, thinking all roads lead to heaven. But then I hear the testimony of what God's done in your life, and I see the fruit, because here you are, and there's the pillar. I mean, he's looking at the smoke and fire too. He sees it. He sees this rock gushing with water in the middle of the desert. He sees all that. What's that stuff? It's called manna. We don't know what it is either. He sees everything, and he realizes there is a true and living God, and he is above all other gods. See, if all roads lead to heaven and all gods are the same and every religion's the same, God spent a whole lot of time wiping the rest of them out to show himself strong so that the world might know who he is and not these other things, you see. He said specifically in Egypt, when I do this thing, all the earth is going to know who I am. I want them to all know who I am. By what I do here with you, I want the whole world to know me. And so he systematically takes out all ten of the gods of Egypt so that they can see the one true and living God because it's best for them. He's not egotistical. He's not in competition. He wants them to worship something that's real, him, not something that's false, not something that's imaginary, not something created by man. Every other religion in the world is man reaching up to God. Christianity is the only religion where God reaches down to man. That's it. And everything else is fake. And so he takes him to that place. And even the father-in-law gets it. How exciting is that? You know? Understands that, no, no, no. Not all roads lead. You know? It's one way. I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He who has the Son has the Father. He who does not have the Son does not have the Father. It's a fact. And he teaches him that. And Jethro gets it. It's exciting. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So they have a little feast there. As they, you know, this guy's just come to know the true and living God. So he's kind of born again, if you will, in the Old Testament. Not really, but he's, he's a follower now. Um, and so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening, So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Okay, now, I wouldn't take my father, my polytheist father-in-law's advice, but now that he's a believer, you know what? There's some wisdom that might be gained from him. Might be something to learn from him now. I don't know about then, but now. And he notices something. What are you doing, Moses? I see this thing going on here. There's Moses sitting in his rock, whatever he's sitting on, and 
Remember how many people are out in the wilderness with Like a million people plus? And anybody that had a problem is all lined up to go talk to Moses, you know? And there they are, you know, coming up to him. You know, Bob stole my tent pegs last night, you know? Bob, whittle your own tent pegs. Give them back to him, okay? Okay, next. And he brings up the next guy, you know, kind of thing. He stole my manna. Well, you know, you're supposed to collect your own manna. You know, don't be taking other people's manna. Whatever it was, small, big, little, you know, there he was answering all these questions. His father-in-law noticed, you know, this isn't good for the people and it's not good for you. Here's what he says. He asked Moses, what are you doing for the people? Moses said to the father-in-law, or said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me. And I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. You know, he's not wrong. It is something he needs to do and he's doing it the best way he knows how. Nobody else has been able to do what he can do so far, so maybe he doesn't even know that he can delegate. Maybe he thinks, this is my role, this is my lot. I sit here every day and listen to everybody's problems, and I try to give them solutions, you know. And maybe they'll get to me, or maybe they won't, or maybe they'll have to come next week, you know, to see me. Who knows? But his father-in-law sees it, and he says this. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. It's not good. Now, he doesn't mean... What you're doing isn't good. The idea of helping people with the problems is good. It's how you're doing it that's wrong. Okay? He's going to give them some advice as to how to change and how to do things better. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. and I will give you counsel and God will be with you. I don't want you to burn out Moses. He's not mad at him for doing it. He just says there's a better way. And, and the people, they're going to get burned out too. We've got to do this differently. I've got some advice for you. Colon. Okay, so here's the advice. Stand before God for the people. You need to do that. What you're doing is right. Okay? Help them. That's for sure. So that you may bring the difficulties to God. That is your place. That's your role. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. First thing you need to do is quit keeping it to yourself. Let's teach everybody what right and wrong is. Here's what God likes. Here's what he doesn't like. You know, Bob may be thinking about stealing some tent pegs. He's going to realize, you know what, that's wrong. I need to whittle my own. You know, I'm not going to steal Levi's tent pegs anymore. They're, They're his. And once you know the law, a lot of the problems get taken care of. For example, on Sunday morning here, on a Wednesday night, or whenever you come here, God's Word is open, and despite my uh, adding to it, my expounding upon it, um, God's Word speaks. And some of the questions, and I've had this several times, they say, well, I was going to come up for prayer, but God answered my question in the, in the Word of God, so I don't need it anymore. Praise the Lord. So that's the first wave. That's your first line of defense. First of all, Moses, teach everybody what's right and wrong, what God likes and what he doesn't like, and it's up to them to obey those things and let that conscience steer them. You know? That's the first thing I want you to do. And I want you to show them how they have to walk or should walk. And I want them to show them the work they must do. Both are necessary. Not just teaching, but I want you to show them how to walk and how to work. Both are, both are important. Now here's phase two. Moreover, You shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. We've got to break this down a little bit. You've got some guys over 10, 50, and I don't want to go through it. I don't want to, you get it. 
so that you're not doing everything. So, you, you know, number 10 guy can handle the tent peg problem. Now, adultery, we may get all the way up to the Supreme Court, which would be you, Moses. But we'll work our way up through the system here, you know, and see if anybody can answer it. Number 10 guy, I don't got this. Go to the 50 guy. The 50 guy can't do it. The hundreds guy might be able to help. Hundreds guy can't do it. Thousands. If the thousands guy can't get it, we got a problem. We've got to take it to Moses and pray. You know, this is something we haven't run into yet. We don't, we don't have precedence for it. And so you can see uh, it's a lot of wisdom there. But I want to skip the qualifications for these guys. You can't just pick anybody for this. Now, there's actually six things here. There's three mentioned, but there's the opposite of what's stated. And I'm going to give you both here. So follow me here in verse 21. I want men that are going to fear God, which means they don't fear man. Both are true. You can't fear God and man. You've got, you fear God, but you don't fear man. So I need those kind of guys. Guys that really want to do what God wants them to do. And, and just because you know, Bob happens to be your next door neighbor in the tent city, you don't give him favor because you're afraid Bob might look at you funny the rest of that. I need guys that aren't afraid to tell people they're wrong. No, I'm sorry, dude. You can't steal tent pegs. Bob, coming over for dinner tonight? Yeah, I guess. You know, I mean, you got to... You've got to tell them the truth. So I need those guys that fear God, but they don't fear man. Secondly, I need men that, are, that uh, men of truth. They're honest, you know. They're honest and they're faithfully honest. Not just once in a while they hit the honest, you know, button, but they're always honest, which means they're not liars. They're not deceivers. They don't trick you. They don't not tell you everything. They're truthful, because you need people that fear God and will tell the truth. What has to be heard, whether it's wanted or not, it has to be heard. The third thing in here is hating covetousness, which means they're content with what God has for them and has given them. They don't want covetousness. Is I want your stuff. I want to gain your stuff. I like your car. I want your house. I want your wife. I want your husband. That's covetousness when you want something that God hasn't given you from somebody else. I don't want those guys. We need guys that hate that. They hate covetousness. That means they're completely at peace and content with what God's given them. You get those three things mixed together and you've got someone who can judge. Who's going to be fair? Who's not going to be corrupt? You know, who's not going to uh, you know, change depending on what face is in front of them? It'll be true blind justice. It's absolutely going to be the same for everybody because you've got guys that are, they fear God, they love the truth, and they hate covetousness. And so I want you to place those guys in, in, in thousands, over hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge at all times. Then it will be that every great matter that they bring to you, they, they bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, so there's his, here's his little, hey, I don't want you to do this because I said so. You need to seek the Lord on this and pray about it. But if he gives you okay, I think it'll be good is what he's getting at. I think you'll be okay. It's really going to be a blessing to the people. So if you do this and, you, and, and the Lord commands it, he says, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Everybody's going to do better. Nothing's going to build. You know, there's a problem when you, let, when, you, when you don't confront the problem, when you don't deal with the situation and you let it fester. You know, that's why God says don't let your anger... Uh, the sun go down on your anger. You don't, don't let that happen. Uh, because you've given it time to now fester. And, it, and, and tomorrow it's going to be even harder to bring it up. And all of a sudden it's no longer an issue. It's way under the radar, but it's a root of bitterness that's growing in your heart. And that'll come back later. It comes out sideways. 
comes out sideways sometimes. Um, anyway, deal with it. I want you to deal with it. Everybody's going to be better. You'll be better and they'll be better. So just trust me on this. If you do this thing, God so commands, uh, then you will be able to endure. And all those people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the peoples, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. So he went back. So what a great encounter, you know. What a great encounter with his father-in-law. That's nice. That's nice. We got both things today, and I don't want to apply it for you. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do the application for you, but, you know, maybe you need to get some living water today. Maybe you need to come to Jesus and trust in Him for your salvation. We're about to have communion here, and they're going to hand out the bread and the juice, and that represents what Christ did for us on the cross. It's a picture of what He did. It's a memorial, a reminder. You may need that this morning, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Maybe you just needed to know, you know what? There's a practical solution to my problem, and God's given that to you. Here's the thing. Whatever you got today, out of whatever portion of God's Word you got it, we got to go implement it now. You've you got to go put it into force. You've got to put it into practice now, or it doesn't do any good. Are you going to go around that mountain again and again and again because you had a problem, you came to get an answer, He gave you a solution, you didn't trust him, you didn't believe him, you're going to go around it again and again and again, and it's time to just move on. Let's go on. Trust God, do what he tells you to do, and move on. So whatever it is he showed you to do, whatever he showed you to do, do it. It's going to be great. It'll be the best, okay, best solution. Now, these guys are all handing out bread and juice, little, little pieces of bread and little cups of juice. The bread represents, and it's broken on purpose, not just for distribution, but it's the broken body of Christ. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, broke it, and said, Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this bread, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember that I broke my body for you, that I willingly sacrificed for you, that I knowingly sacrificed him. What's going to happen tomorrow, when they were having this Passover meal, what's going to happen tomorrow is on purpose, and it's because I love you. So every time you eat this bread, I want you to remember that I died on purpose for you. It was God's design, it was the Father's plan, it was the Father's will, and I obeyed it and willingly went to the cross for you. Because we all deserve the cross, we all deserve the punishment, we all deserve to be separated because of our sins. And yet knowing that we could never reach up to God, we could never overcome those sins, we could never make up for those sins, and we deserve the cross ourselves, He went instead of us. He was the Lamb that took away the sins of the world. And that's what this bread represents. The cup is the new covenant, he said. As often as you drink this cup, do this in remembrance of me. It's a new covenant. We're about, we're about getting into the old covenant here in Exodus. They're about going to get the law from God and understand that here's what you do. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. If you break any of these laws, there's a sacrifice you have to offer up to me, and that'll cover your sins. It won't forgive your sins, but it covers your sins. It doesn't take away your sins. It only allows you to maintain contact with me. Every one of those animal sacrifices we're about to read about because of the sins of men is pointing to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that will happen at the cross. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is what John the Baptist declared about him. So this new covenant, 
We're getting the old covenant here in the next few weeks. The new covenant is that Jesus has come and he has died on the cross and he has risen from the dead and our sins are forgiven and there is no more sacrifice to be made. No more animals can be sacrificed. In fact, on Wednesday night, we just studied that. As Peter and John went up to the temple at the hour of prayer, not the hour of sacrifice. The sacrifice was 30 minutes before, but they knew that Jesus was the sacrifice. They came up 30 minutes after the sacrifice was offered because they're still worshiping and showed up for prayer because Jesus is their sacrifice. And that's what this represents. I believe and you believe when you eat and drink this bread that this is his broken body for me. This is his new covenant for me and there's no more sacrifices to be made. And it's because of the sacrifice at the cross that I'm able to go to heaven. My sins are forgiven. Now, I say all that because Paul goes on to say, I don't want you to eat or drink this in an unworthy manner. The unworthy manner is this. I know exactly what this bread means. You just explained it to me. I know exactly what this juice means. You just explained it to me, and I don't believe either, and you gulp it down. That's a danger. That's, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself. It's like you're stomping on Christ. So yeah, forget you. I don't care about your grace. It's best you just sit at your feet now if you're not ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Just set it down when we're, when we're praying. You don't have to do it now. You don't have to make a big scene out of it. Well, I'm not eating it then. You know, better yet, Paul then continues and says, better that you judge yourself. Better that you look at your own heart and say, yeah, I am a sinner. I separated myself from God based on what I did. I'm, I need forgiveness. And today I believe that the broken body of Christ was for me. Today I believe that the shed blood was for me. And I eat this bread and I drink this cup in remembrance of what he did for me 2,000 years ago, once for all. Once for all. And that's the prayer we're going to pray before we eat, if you've never accepted Christ. So let's, let's pray. Jesus, for most of us, we thank you for this reminder that you gave us, this memorial service of eating this bread and drinking this cup, that we would always be reminded that you died on our, on our behalf, that you took our place, that the unworthy manner is not how well we did this week, but our sins this week show us that you are the way, the truth, and life, and that you're, um, we trust in that righteousness given to us, that your perfection was given to us at the cross upon our belief, Lord. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, for those that don't know you this morning and have never judged themselves, but they are now, and they're saying, I know what this means. I know this bread is your body. It represents your body broken for me. I know this cup means it's your shed blood for me. And I know that by eating and drinking this, I I understand that what you did 2,000 years ago on the cross once for all was for me and for my sins specifically. So I confess my sins to you. I'm sorry. I thank you for the forgiveness that's given to me. Um, I thank you for the righteousness, the perfection that's given to me through your son. And I receive that wholeheartedly today. I'm so thankful, God, for what you've done for me. And so I eat and drink for the first time in a worthy manner, knowing that I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven. And I love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead. We're going to do this first. You ready? Smash the cup. One, two, three. All right. That just, that just helps the whole thing. The reason we smash the cup is because the cup represents that broken vessel that we are. Yep. Uh, hopefully Christ shines through us and people can see us through our cracks. Have a good week, guys.